0: This episode is a supplement to regular Inside Israel News episodes. we will be discussing background related to current events in Israel and the Middle East. This episode is about the Abraham Accords, or the Abrahamic Accords, as I like to say, borrowing on Hebrew pronunciation. These accords represent the peace agreement between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain between two Gulf states and the state of Israel. These Arab Gulf states have chosen to be the fourth and fifth peacemakers with Israel, and that is a unique and incredibly important uh, event. Uh, Listeners have noted that I've made reference to it several times and I've intended to talk more about the Abrahamic Accords, but we have not had the opportunity to because uh, obviously I've been very focused on the Israeli elections and events and politics uh, surrounding that. Well, uh, it's become increasingly important to understand these accords as we go forward into the election, because now, obviously, uh, there is talk of the possibility of, say, uh, Arab political parties like Ra'am joining the government, and it will be relevant to talk about relationship between Israel and the Arabs uh, as it currently stands. And this is one of the major issues that Appertain to that uh, current event of uh, what's going on. So I'm going to talk about how we got here and uh, discuss what the Accords are and what goes forward from there. And I will also be discussing some of the criticism of these Accords. The roots of the Arab-Israeli conflict go all the way back to the 1920s and beyond. So obviously going in depth into that wouldn't be necessary for this particular uh, background. but In 1948, when Israel declared its independence, uh, it was immediately attacked by six Arab states. And this is where the real war, the real fighting between these nation states uh, began, between Arab states and Israel. Now that conflict lasted over several decades. We had the 1956 Suez Canal affair, the Six Day War, the Yom Kippur War, and so on and so forth. Eventually, however, by 1979, Egypt was willing to sit down with Israel and make peace. They were willing to end the conflict. The Camp David Accords brought an end to the war between Israel and Egypt and uh, brought uh, peace to those two countries. They've been able to cooperate with each other ever since. In 1996, Jordan sat down and negotiated a peace deal with Israel. Obviously there was the 1992 Oslo Accords with the Palestinians, although uh, the Palestinians are obviously not a state of their own. But uh, the idea there was to create greater self-governance among the Palestinians so that they could eventually become a state of their own. Although they were never at war, I regard Turkey as being another country that Uh, Although a Muslim country sort of made peace with Israel, again, they were never at war with each other, but uh, Israel and Turkey used to have very good relations until recently. Uh, Unfortunately, Erdogan's government has been moving in a more Islamist direction, and the relationship between Turkey and Israel has degraded over the recent years. So at this point, Israel had good relations with two Arab states and another Muslim state that is Turkish, ethnically speaking. And this is the state that things uh, have been since 1996, basically. These, are, these three countries are on good terms with Israel, and Israel was on very poor terms with the rest of the Muslim world. Now, enter into this situation the rise of Iran. Up until 1979, Iran was a modern state uh, led by the Shah. He was modernizing and, and updating. Uh, the society, encouraging modernity and, and Western behavior. Uh, m- many women were educated. There were colleges and universities. There was a growing middle class, and Iran was headed in a, a more modern direction. However, this led to a somewhat uh, a backlash among a lot of Muslims who wanted an Islamist revolution, who wanted a country that was based more closely on Islamic law and very much anti-Israel. And as a result, in 1979, there was a revolution that drove the Shah out of Iran and led to the dictatorship of the Ayatollahs, including the Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, this dictatorship is still in power in Iran, and they immediately began to antagonize Israel. But soon they had bigger fish to fry. It wasn't long after the Iranian Revolution that one Saddam Hussein, who had just come to power in Iraq, launched an invasion. And this war between Iraq and Iran went back and forth for a decade before finally the two came to terms with one another. It had become quite a quagmire and quite a stalemate by that time. And so Iran's primary concern was with what was going on on their border with Iraq, their, uh, their western border. And while they had uh, tendrils of... Of proxies out in the Middle East, like Hezbollah or the Houthi rebels, they didn't really have the opportunity to take advantage of those because they had to deal with this threat right on their border. Well, in 2003, the uh, Bush administration launched, and what is, and I'll, I've told you I'll claim my biases, what what I believe was an unwise invasion of Iraq, and they toppled Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein's toppling created a a vacuum of power in the Middle East. And as a result of this vacuum of power, Iran rose to become a major regional power. Culturally, a lot of people in the Middle East look up to the most militant, bellicose, and powerful, seemingly powerful uh, leader. And Iran definitely has a certain elan, a certain uh, military prowess, and uh, a powerful attitude. That they want to go out and fight wars and win, then, as Sun Tzu said, right, the wars are won in the temples before they're fought on the battlefield. Well, uh, this this refers to the sort of cultural strength of a people who desire to win more than another group of people desire to win. Well, that's Iran. Iran definitely wants to destroy Israel. They definitely want to dominate the Middle East. Iran is a Shiite country. The Shiites are a separate sect of Islam from the Sunnis, and I'm not gonna go into their sectarian differences. If you really wanted to boil it down and be really, really, really oversimplistic, you could say like the Catholics and the Protestants. In, In a nutshell, the Shiites are followers of Ali, who was a scion of Muhammad, and they believe that there are ongoing Uh, religious leaders, a a religious hierarchy of people who can uh, continue to offer, uh, I want to say, institutional revelation very much like the Catholic Church, you might say, Uh, and the other uh, sect are the Sunnis. The Sunnis have a number of commentaries, the, the Hadithas, on the Quran and they follow their religion a little bit less monolithically. They have a number of Imams, religious leaders who teach a number of different things, and they follow their, the strictures of their religion from the point of view that they are doing so based on these commentaries, but there's no institution, no, uh, let's just say, not like the, the Catholic Church, which can update things or issue new um, uh, doctrine or, or change uh, n- change beliefs and this kind of thing. There, there are no papal, bu- papal bulls in in the Sunni Uh, approach. However, in the Shiite approach, the Ayatollahs, the spiritual leaders, have considerable power uh, to change their religious beliefs. And many Shiites believe that there is a 12th imam coming in the future who is a sort of um, mythological figure who is going to set the world right. And of course, setting the world right very much involves war against the Jews and, and the the, the death of many many a Jew, because this is uh, this is kind of how that belief system uh, thinks. And no offense to Islam, just that uh, there's attacks on Jews and Christians are frequent in a lot of more modern Islamic writing and, and thinking. So, this is the the two sects. They don't really get along with each other. Uh, Shiites living in Sunni countries have a tendency to be poorer and. You might say they are denied the, the better economic opportunities uh, by their Sunni brethren. Some could argue that there are cultural factors there, that they have a high degree of nepotism, a low degree of meritocracy. Uh, they don't tend to value education and hard work as much, perhaps. But the problem then is the the Arab culture that has prevailed up until very recently, likewise, has a high degree of nepotism and uh, does not value hard work or education as much. These are values that are changing in the Middle East now. Uh, education and hard work are becoming more valuable in modern Arab culture, it, and uh, more books are being written, and there's a, a flowering of culture and, and philosophy and thinking. It's, it's in its nascent, but it is growing. Well, uh, this hasn't been there for many years, so it's hard to say that, well, the, the Shiites deserve to be Poor, well, you know, not quite. Maybe they are kind of being held down by the Sunni majorities in their countries. There are Shiite minorities in Saudi Arabia, in the United Arab Emirates, in Yemen, and Lebanon, a couple of other places. They're kind of spread out around the Middle East. In Bahrain, there's the unique challenge. Bahrain used to be part of the Persian Empire uh, not that long ago, and Iran claims Bahrain, the island of Bahrain, as their own. Bahrain is a majority Shiite country. About two-thirds of the population, uh, as high as 70%, depending on which demographer you ask, is Shiite. And the Sunni minority there rules Bahrain as a Sunni country. So you can imagine that's a a somewhat inflammatory situation. Uh, It's something tantamount, let's just say, to Christians leading a Muslim country. Now, they're um, they're all Muslims. They're all likewise sharing a common religion. Uh, But uh, you can imagine that, say, uh, Northern Ireland uh, chafes between Protestants and Catholics. Well, the same thing happens in Bahrain and places like that. So there is a great threat that Iran could take advantage of these Shiite minorities to raise uh, soldiers, terrorists, and uh, political leaders who could then take over these Sunni countries and govern them on behalf of a Shiite alliance. Basically, Iran has agents, if you will, already living in these countries, people who are naturally friendly uh, to those countries. Now, for a long time, the Sunni Arab states have been pumping out a lot of propaganda that is anti-Israel, anti-America, the West is bad, Islam is good, and this kind of thing. And it's how they've propped up their states. So anytime someone complains, they come out and they say, oh, God, you know, look, it's, we're all poor, we're all miserable, we're oppressed, we have these dictators and monarchies that rule us and we don't really have a say in government and everybody just says to to answer those questions. Oh, it's America. America's the great Satan. Oh, it's Israel. Israel's evil. That's why we have to live this way because these bad people mistreat us. It's a vast Jewish conspiracy. It's A vast American Western conspiracy. Well, you say that enough and some people are going to take action on that. They're going to join terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or Islamic State and they're going to go fight the good fight, and those people who are going off and fighting are gonna start looking like they have a little bit more elan, a little bit more cultural power, let's say, than, say, the Saudis, who have billions and billions and trillions of dollars invested in the West, make a lot of money off of oil, and are pretty happy with the way things are. The status quo is really good for them. And after a while, there, there has been a divergence there. Now, the Saudis, the Emiratis, Uh, the Bahraini, and many of these other governments face internal threats from Sunni militant Islamists, just as much as from their Shiite minorities, who are obviously backed by Iran. Well, these Arab states have a natural ally, someone whose very existence depends on being able to defeat Sunni Islamist terrorist groups and who has to defend itself also from Iran and Shiite terrorist groups and militants, uh, and that is Israel. Israel, for the very fact of its survival, must combat these same two groups. And so for a time now, uh, the past several decades, Arab governments have been growing increasingly aware that unless the Saudis, say, want to be thrown out of out of government in favor of the Bin Ladens, or in favor of an Iranian-backed Shiite regime—Heaven uh, uh, forbid! Well, this this is, you know, they they're going to need friends and allies, and the natural ally is Israel. But there's a problem: the Arabs have spent a lot of years talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict through the lens of the Palestinians, and so peace between the Arabs and Israel could only come after the Palestinian question is settled. I'm not gonna go into too much depth about that, except to say that for a long time, there's been this peace process industry that we have had many negotiations, there are uh, whole sections of the State Department offices and embassies and consulates and, and a large staffs dedicated to this process and, and it's been done over and over again. I mentioned before uh, the book by Dennis Ross, The Missing Peace, which talks about how the Clinton administration sat down with Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians and tried to negotiate a deal, and they gave the Palestinians almost everything they wanted. It was a really sweet deal from that point of view, and the Palestinians turned it down, and Yasser Arafat launched the second intifada. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Marwan Barghouti, for example, is in prison for having led Uh, that Intifada, and there were a lot of uh, Israeli civilians killed in that uh, struggle, and uh, that was not a a happy time for anyone, but uh, the Palestinians have learned since then that it was a really huge strategic error to abandon the peace process, give up on what they had negotiated, and launch a campaign of violence, because now it is fairly obvious that they are not a partner for peace, And that has made it so that Western governments and other Arab governments have had to acknowledge that no matter what Israel does, Israel is not the problem in the peace process. And that has created a a major public relations problem. So this is the situation. Iran is gaining power. The collapse of Syria allowed Iran to gain strength in Syria. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, an Iranian-backed militia in Lebanon, has been helping the Assad regime remain in power and fighting their civil war, and Iran has given a lot of backing to the government in Syria. Also, Islamic State invaded Iraq, and in weakening the government in Iraq, many Iranian-backed militias went and fought on Iraq's side to go uh, defeat the uh, Islamic State in the Sunni Triangle. So, now, Iran has been a a primary um, opponent of Sunni Islamic groups like Islamic State. So as a result, the Obama administration, looking at the region, decided that they were going to back Iran and have Iran act as an American proxy to defeat Islamic State. And as a result, they wouldn't, the, the US would then look the other way as Iran gained power and, and prominence in the region. U.S. sent pallets of cash to Iran as part of the Iran deal, gave them back uh, large amounts of money that had been held in the U.S. from the time that the Shah fell, money that had been impounded, money that could have been given to the victims of terrorist groups by our justice system. Uh, unfortunately, that money was all released, and sanctions were lifted as part of the Iran deal. All of that was part of the sort of uh, uh, unspoken agreement that – As a result of all of that, Iran would go fight Islamic State and they would keep their finger on these Sunni Islamic militants in the uh, Sunni Triangle of Iraq Iraq, and in Syria which has fallen into civil war and chaos. As a result, the Arab governments are less and less uh, comfortable with their alliance with the United States and they've come to recognize that America is not necessarily a reliable ally against Iran. Well, that means they're going to need a new ally, and that has opened the door for making peace with Israel. So the growing awareness that Israel is a potential ally to the Arabs has been the challenge of the last few years as Iran has grown more powerful. Of course, the, the sticking point of the Palestinian peace process Prevents Arab countries from normalizing their relations with Israel until the Palestinians come around and sign a peace deal. Enter Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a businessman, not a politician. And as a result, he's not interested in processes. Processes are not ends unto themselves, but to politicians they are, after all. As long as there's a process, there are whole offices of the State Department, consulates, and you know, a whole industry built on this this peace process that doesn't really exist. But in a political sense, you can say, hey, yeah, we've got a process going, and that's good enough for senators and representatives, but it's not good for a businessman. If a businessman starts building a casino and the process takes 20 years, that's not good. That's going to cost a lot of money. We're not interested in processes. Businessmen are interested in getting things done, and Donald Trump is a negotiator and a master of the deal, of reaching agreements between disparate parties in order to make things happen. And of course, he's also a master of finding out what it is people want and negotiating to give them enough of what they want to do what he wants them to do in order to serve the interests of his own business and become a a profitable enterprise. As a result, when Donald Trump entered office, he was not interested in the peace process, the diplomatic process, and all of this government that just doesn't do anything. If he goes to the State Department and says, for example, I'd like to entertain you know, peace deals between Arabs, Arab states and Israel, you know, State Department, oh, well, we have got this, we got that, oh, there's this peace process, we, we got to deal with the Palestinians first. Donald Trump decided he was going to go around that. He appointed his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, the husband of Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's daughter, as a special envoy to the Middle East. And the first thing he did was go travel and meet with different leaders in the Middle East and get the lay of the land. He saw opportunities, discussed them with his father-in-law, and they started a process outside the usual diplomatic channels, outside the usual processes, because they were aware that that things could be made to happen uh, outside the recommended channels. All right, so what did they do? The first thing they did was redraft the Palestinian peace deal, and the second thing he did was move the Jerusalem uh, the, the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Uh, something that Congress voted to do overwhelmingly back in the 90s, but no president has had the gall to do since then. Well, Donald Trump went ahead and moved the embassy. So now the United States embassy is in Jerusalem. He also allowed Israel to annex the Golan Heights. Israel captured the Golan Heights in the 1967 war, uh, lost them briefly in the Yom Kippur War before reclaiming them. These heights overlook the the Kinneret, the, the Sea of Galilee, and uh, they're important to Israel's strategic defense, the ability to have radar stations that can track aircraft, missiles, and other such. Uh, It's also a a place where a number of Israeli businesses have been set up, making wine, what have you. And there are a number of Druze who live there. Druze are a uh, a sect uh, or a subgroup, let's say, of uh, Islam and the Ismaili movement. And They live there and they want to stay in Israel too. They don't want to go back to Syria. Uh, Negotiations to make peace with Syria broke down back in 2000, uh, again, held between Ehud Barak, the Clinton administration, and the regime of Bashar al-Assad. Well, this is the interesting situation Israel found itself in. Jared Kushner's going around and, and peace is being worked on outside the regular peace process. Israel has annexed the Golan Heights The U.S. embassy is in Jerusalem, and a number of other countries have begun moving their embassies from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem as well. And a new peace proposal was put forward. This one tends to focus more on how to develop a Palestinian economy and help the people of the Shomron and Yehuda and Gaza Strip become more affluent. Uh, it's an interesting approach. This is the approach that Natan Sharansky, uh, one of the refuseniks from Russia, wrote a great book, The Case for Democracy. Excellent read, highly recommend. Uh, this was an approach he developed uh, over a decade ago, suggesting that Israel's focus on making peace should be a focus on developing the Palestinian economy. The use of terrorism, of homicide bombers, of rockets, uh, the, the distrust that is sown by that the enmity between the peoples forces israel to build the security fence and to keep arabs to one side and israelis to the other it it is a strategy used by terror groups to segregate the two groups of people because there is no trust between them and thus it is a a process that keeps the Palestinian Arabs from becoming more affluent and I've already talked about the police state they have there where one in 5 Palestinians is employed in patrolling and controlling the other four more more stringently even than uh East Germany which was a one in 6 uh, so this is a this is the situation they have there anyway the Trump peace plan was was proposed The Palestinians rejected it out of hand. They never miss an opportunity to to miss an opportunity as Israelis are fond of saying. And if you poll most Israelis and ask them about it uh, they'll just say we tried that. Uh, Israelis are somewhat jaded now. They tried to make peace. They they negotiated in good faith. They did everything they thought they had been asked to do and no peace resulted and only more violence and pain. Uh, Everyone has a family member who was lost to terrorism during uh, the, the various campaigns by these terror groups against the peace process. So this is, uh, this is the situation they find themselves in. Anyway, when they rejected the peace proposal, the Trump administration then moved to a, the next phase of their approach. If the Arabs were not going to negotiate, the, the Palestinian Arabs are not going to negotiate, then Israel should be allowed to annex all of the Jewish communities in the Shomron and Yehuda, in these regions Uh, along the mountainous region, that ridge that that runs in central Israel, that the international community and international press calls the West Bank. Now, if Israel were to annex all of its communities there, they would cease to be a negotiating point. There would never be an opportunity for the Palestinians in the future to negotiate over whether those communities are moved or removed or what land swaps could be done. That would become a permanent part of Israel. It would change the map. And that created an opportunity. Once that prospect was there, and recall now, if you're looking at this from the the Arab point of view, Israel has already been allowed to annex the, the Golan Heights, right? Now that Syria has disintegrated and they, you know, they missed their opportunity to make peace with Israel and get the Golan Heights back, back in 2000, well, now... With that opportunity gone, and the Syrian state basically in shambles, the Golan Height belongs to Israel. So you've, you've already seen that the Trump administration will follow through on this. So there, the Arab situation stands. The Palestinians are about to lose a major bargaining chip in future negotiations and significant territory that at least on the Arab side of the conflict, they believe should belong to the Palestinian population, right? And this is where uh, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates enter the equation, because by signing the the Abraham Accords, the Abrahamic Accords with Israel, they prevented that annexation from happening. And so they can say that part of making their peace deal was protecting the Palestinians from the loss of all of that territory, the loss of that bargaining chip. They have kept the bargaining chip on the table by normalizing relations with Israel and in the process those two countries who are very small and weak have gained a powerful new ally against their common threat Iran and so they they agreed so what what do the uh, what do the Abrahamic Accords actually say uh, first of all the name comes from uh, the staff at the White House that came up with a clever name and there's a good reason for it that I'll go into shortly but the Accords simply speak of normalization. Uh, religious freedom will be recognized by all of the parties. Israel already recognizes the right to the freedom of religion, but it is a powerful thing for the governments of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, uh, no, no stranger to religious repression, uh, to sign an agreement that says they will embrace freedom of religion. It is also an accord that speaks of normalization, of economic and political affairs. They will exchange ambassadors, there will be open travel between the the three countries and uh, they'll be able to trade with one another and buy products. Now Israel has been trading with these uh, Gulf states for many years through third parties and let's just say Israeli companies sell things to a Turkish company and then the Turkish company ships that product to uh, the United Arab Emirates and there's no Made in Israel stamp on the product and you know, they're able to buy it. And, and so this, this sort of, uh, we'll call it stealth trade, has been going on for a while. But now that trade no longer needs to be stealth. You'll be able to go to the UAE, buy software, buy goods, manufactured goods, or what have you, that say, Made in Israel, proudly displayed on them, because they have normalized relations. There, and uh, travel between the two is especially important. Uh, the Saudis have allowed Israel to use their airspace for commercial flights, so El Al can now fly directly from uh, the uh, Ben-Gurion airport in near, uh, near Lod in Israel, uh, and they can just get right up into the air, fly right over Jordan and Saudi Arabia uh, to Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, right? so. This is, a, this is an important step. Now that's also a warning to Iran, because if Israel has the right to overfly Saudi airspace with civilian aircraft, and there's been this question in the back of everyone's mind, what would the Saudis do if, say, the Israelis asked to overfly with military aircraft? Let's just say they were on a mission to bomb nuclear facilities in Iran. So that, that's kind of a warning to Iran that the Saudis are open to that possibility. Right, so these accords establish religious freedom, normalization of relations between the two. Already, uh, Arab-Israeli sports teams have played in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Arab-Israeli biking team is going to play in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Slowly but surely, even though Saudi Arabia is not a member of the accords, slowly but surely, Israel and these countries are establishing common ties and trading with one another. Uh, And that, that leads to peace. Once people start trading with one another, once they become friends, once they get to know each other as people, they cease to think of them as that other, that guy over there who's responsible for my predicament. Arab countries are also trying to move away from the oil economy. They want a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. They want high-tech industries. Israel has all of that. And Israel is more more than eager to seek out regional trading partners since Europeans are always boycotting Israeli goods and there's a, there's a lot of uh, anti-Semitism in Europe. So this is what the Abraham Accords means to those countries. Greater normalization and now cooperation. And it is true that now they have military cooperation as well. Israel now works with Central Command America's uh, multinational uh, coordinated military presence in the Gulf that is part of the, uh, the Uh, military alliance against Iran. Now, the larger goal of the Trump administration seems to have been to create this Arab-Israeli alliance that would then become a regional player that would provide regional stability and address regional military conflicts, like, say, the war in Syria and conflicts in Iraq, without the direct intervention of the United States. So the US could, say, provide arms and financial support to its allies in the region, and they could do the fighting. Uh, Essentially, these countries, this alliance, would become a proxy for the United States. So we would no longer have to send troops to these countries, like Syria, where they would have to fight and get involved on the ground this would be a huge step in the right direction. The United States uses the African Union very similarly in Africa. When there are unstable countries, civil wars, conflicts, uh, peacekeeping missions, the United States and our Western allies pay the African Union countries to send troops to these countries. And that way, say, uh, Nigeria and uh, other sub-Saharan African countries can then police their own continent and if this could be done in the Middle East, it would be a major benefit to Middle Eastern uh, countries and it would leave the US without having to put our own boots on the ground and put our own youth at risk. All right, what are some of the criticisms of the Abraham Accord? We talked a lot about the benefits here to these countries. Uh, Obviously Bahrain and the UAE are going to feel a lot more secure in any conflict with Iran. Now that they have Israel as their ally and can buy Israeli military technology and, and have access to that, uh, what, are, what are some of the things that people have said against it? The main criticism that I heard out there, especially from the American left, is, well, this is a weapons deal, not a peace deal. Okay, let's talk about that. This was a peace deal. These countries decided that they were going to normalize relations, share ambassadors, trade with one another, and uh, have commercial flights to one another. So it is a peace deal. It is also a weapons deal. And the fact is, every peace deal has also been a weapons deal. When Israel sat down with Egypt at Camp David, those two countries did not just sign a peace deal, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat, out of the goodness of their own hearts, out of a sense of altruism and peace, love, and and kumbaya, right? There was a little bit of sweetener to the deal. The United States offered financial and military aid, economic aid, healthcare aid to those countries. And not only that, access to US weapons for Egypt in particular, Egypt was very keen because uh, they had been a partner of the Soviet Union up through the 73 war. And they had seen that in two wars, Israeli technology from the United States and Europe had bested Soviet technology. Even the Soviet surfaced air missiles, which had proved so troublesome in the Um Kippur War, were inferior to their Western counterparts. So obviously Egypt was looking for new military hardware and new allies. So that's the case. Uh, Jordan wasn't so much a, a so much a weapons deal. Jordan sided with Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War, and as a result, this caused Jordan to be isolated uh, from their Arab neighbors as well as from the international community. Major economic impact on Jordan, uh, but the uh, the Heshemite kings' monarchy there—they uh, made a major miscalculation and supported Saddam in that conflict. So, in 1996 making peace with Israel was one way that Jordan could show, hey, 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 we're not so bad, uh, invite us back to the international table. So that wasn't so much an arms deal, but obviously Jordan has gained massive benefits from it, and water cooperation in particular between Israel and Jordan means that Jordan now has a fresh water supply in, in greater amounts, which is very important in a desert country. It doesn't have a lot of resources of its own. Okay, so this is also a weapons deal. When Israel made peace with Egypt, uh, right there in, in the 80s, we saw the rise of groups like APAC and uh, various other Jewish, predominantly Jewish organizations, but they also have Christian members. People will call it the Jewish lobby and, and, and slander us that way, like somehow there's something nefarious about the whole thing. Every group has lobby in Washington, DC. Bankers have a lobby, farmers have a lobby, teachers have a lobby. Why can't those who support Israel have a lobby, Christians, Jews, and otherwise? And they do. The America-Israel Public Affairs Committee and groups like it have uh, worked with members of Congress to help them understand the issue, to educate, to take them on trips to the Middle East so they can really see what's going on and they aren't caught up in the political milieu and the propaganda about it. Well, one of the most important issues to those of us who lobby for Israel is that Israel has a qualitative technological advantage over its opponents. So, for example, America sold F-15 fighters to Israel first and only to Saudi Arabia many, many years later and F-15 fighters of a lower quality. Israel has better technology and we are willing to sell that technology to Israel. Now, why is this? There's a couple of reasons that aren't just self-serving. When the United States sends weapons to Israel, Israel is fighting people who are also our enemies. The the people that are against Israel are against American interests in the region. And if Israel didn't exist, they'd be antagonizing our European allies as well, right? So it's very much in America's interest to help Israel keep those people at bay, right? So America gets a lot for its of bang for its buck. We spend about three and a half billion dollars a year sending military aid to Israel, 70% of which has to be spent in the US. So Israel buys American tanks, planes, Uh, guns and equipment. And really the only difference between uh, with that 70 percent of that aid between America's military spending and giving that aid to Israel is that ultimately the equipment goes to Israel to be used by the Israeli Defense Forces. But we also know the rules of engagement in Israel. We know that Israel is a democratic country that holds its government accountable. We can trust that when we give Israel these high-tech weapons they're not going to go out and carpet bomb Damascus, right? They're not going to go out and kill a whole bunch of people using our equipment and give us a bad name. When we give weapons to the Saudis, the Saudis are not nice people. The Saudis are not the, the kind of people who are democratic and accountable. The Saudis are not the kind of people uh, who care whether they bomb civilians or not. They are tougher than that and uh, a little less Uh, ethical, let's just say, in their conduct of war. And as a result, America cannot trust them with the same kinds of military technology. As a result of all of this, the F-35 fighter, which is the Joint Strike Fighter, a semi-stealth plane that uh, uses advanced technology and advanced weaponry, has been a technology that America is willing to sell to Israel. Israel now has a a squadron of the F-35I, a deer fighter, and has been unwilling to sell to Arab countries we still use the F-15. Well, making peace with Israel removes that objection from the UAE and Bahrain to their having these weapons, because now they're allies with Israel, allies with the United States, and since they're no longer at enmity with our allies in the region, we can entrust them with those weapons as well. Also, we've established CENTCOM, you know, central Command, so we know what they're doing with these weapons. So we have a little bit of say in how they're used as part of this alliance. So we're not just giving weapons to some bad guys in the desert who are going to go bomb civilians and, and do horrible things with them. Now we know we're trading with people who are true partners in peace, who are behaving in a manner that is in keeping with American interests and American values, right? Now, does that mean that the UAE gets some really wonderful weapons and greater military aid and, and help from the United States as part of the, the sweetener to a peace deal with Israel? Sure, but that's certainly not the only reason they did this. If the UAE wanted more advanced fighters, there were other ways to get them rather than going all the way out on the limb to make peace with Israel. There is a genuine cultural desire to make peace between the Arab leaders Uh, and Israel. And the older Arab generation who watched 800,000 Jews be forced out of the Middle East into Israel are genuinely regretful about it. And I'll be talking about that in other episodes. In any case, the Abraham Accords are a landmark peace agreement between Israel and these countries. Since then, Sudan, Morocco, and uh, Kosovo have also joined in making peace with Israel and establishing relations. Uh, Morocco and Kosovo were never really at war with Israel, but again, they're establishing diplomatic ties and and normalizing relations. And Sudan, uh, the new government there, having overthrown their dictator, is really eager to become players and, and partners in the international community. They want to end sanctions and show that they're not a terrorist state like the predecessor government. So, of course, they are eager to make peace as well. So this is a genuine desire to make peace, to end the enmity, and to create this grand sort of Middle Eastern alliance between Jews and Arabs, between Israel and Arab states, and to focus the energy against the common threat, uh, which is Iran, and also Sunni militants who are a threat to, uh, obviously, to these Arab states as much as they are also to Israel. that's the Abrahamic Accords. Were there weapons deals that were part of it? Sure, they always are. But in the end, the prospect of America having proxies in the region, an alliance in the region that will stabilize the Middle East, combined with America's major oil output uh, and being a, an energy exporter, so that we're not so reliant on the price of oil and, and worried about imports of uh, foreign oil, right? This created an opportunity for the Middle East to become less important to American interests, where our allies there could handle all of the military situation and deal with those problems while they sell oil predominantly to East Asia, to Japan, China, and Korea, who don't have a lot of oil of their own, obviously. And the United States can export our resources to Europe predominantly, and that way, We're we're part of a a happier, more peaceful world where American troops are not being deployed to these conflicts. Now, the Biden administration, having come to office, has immediately ceased U.S. aid to fight the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which, of course, is to the benefit of Iran. Uh, Iran has already sensed an immediate weakness in the U.S. government, and so they are negotiating with us from a a point of view of – strength on their end and weakness on ours which was not the case last year and uh, now there's a question whether these Abraham Accords will be able to go forward because the impetus behind them is uh, was the uh, establishment of this regional proxy alliance to end the conflict between uh, Israel and the Arabs and reduce US involvement in the Middle East. All right, for more information about Israeli news and current events, insideisrael.news, look us up on Facebook. Look forward to your feedback. L'chiturot, goodbye.